You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. So I'm super excited to be here because not only are we at a conference that I've attended since 1999 when I was in college and Denver was my first American Academy of Religion to attend, but Anna, we're here in person. We are. We're actually sitting across the table from each other, which doesn't hardly ever happen when we're recording our podcast. So it's very exciting to actually- Not mediated by a screen. No. No, no screens, no dog at my feet that right, could bark, right. no lawn guys outside your window right. that could be, right. you know, weed eating. Right. It's, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> but we've got someone very special with us today, and um, it's actually, this is our trial run of these in-person interviews. Right. But we have my PhD advisor, the 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 white man who stewarded my PhD process right. for which I am very grateful and I'm very excited to be in conversation with Ted. Uh, we often don't have straight white men on right. the podcast, but I do remember a conversation that we had at the coffee shop where we were talking about queer mm-hmm. and and in in my understanding of queer as like this orientation to the world. At one point, you did say, "Well, yeah, I mean, we probably all are queer in some capacity." So, I'm just saying now. Ted does have a wife and several kids, right. and so you know. The embodiment of queerness for Ted is is not the same as some of the other people right. maybe that we've had on on the podcast. But I'm just saying, Ted is a complicated person who affirms queerness for his own life in some capacity yes. as a scholar of religion. But but we often don't have these kinds of people on our podcast. We don't, and we just want to acknowledge for those of you that are listening that we recognize that inviting persons of great privilege, specifically those that identify as white and male and straight, into conversations like this can can be something that is curious for you or concerning for you. And so we we are doing this with great intention. We feel very confident in in not just in Ted as a human, but in Ted's work in the world. And so just know that um, you know we already know how Ted is kind of disavowing his own privilege and patriarchy in the world. And so we just want you to know that we've invited him into this space with a real intentionality around that. But if there was ever a patriarch, I would choose Ted to be my patriarch, yes. (laughs) That's totally fair. Yeah. Um, So Ted Vile is the Pothoff Professor of Theology and Modern Western Religious Thought. That's a lot. At the Isle of School of Theology. Um, And then he's also the Vice President of Innovation, Learning, and Institutional Research at ILIF. And so uh, what what do all of those things mean, Ted? Like, what 
what what does that mean about you and about the work you do? Tell tell our listeners okay. a little bit about who you are and 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 what you do at ILIF. All right, thank you. So that's actually uh, well. Number one, I'm super honored to be here, uh, and I do think like queerness is an orientation, and I would never claim that identity because it feels like an appropriation. But you know, y'all get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for most of my career, I've been a professor of religious studies. And um, I uh, am mostly interested in how the things that seem normal in the world actually are not normal and they have a history and a genealogy and they're kind of infused with different kinds of power. And one of the ways of, uh, of understanding and then trying to change the world is if you understand the genealogies um, and the non-natural nature of things that seem nature like gender or race or religion. And so I've these things are constantly shifting, but there's a there is a major shift kind of in the West, whatever that means, in the early 19th century, and that's kind of the period I've spent most of my time focusing on. Uh, recently, I the other part of my title um, is a project to try to get uh, the kind of I don't know, let's just call it queer theology that that we do at ILIF out into the world in different spaces outside of academia, um, where uh, I don't know the. The academy as a whole and theological education has maybe less of a place in the world where people listen and pay attention to it. And so uh, we're just trying to go out where people are at. And ILIF is embarking on a really interesting um, project in um, conversation with Loose Foundation. And you are spearheading part of that conversation around artificial intelligence and the work that um, might spawn out of a relationality between AI and our theological groundings and understandings. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about that project? Yeah, sure. So I would say that that Philip Butler is actually the the, Fair. the spearhead. Fair. Uh, I helped get the grant <laughs> to support <laughs> Philip, but he's amazing. Um, and, and y'all will talk with him a little bit later. But um, so the idea is that in the world of tech, which increasingly uh, sort of infuses and shapes our interactions in the world and and what's possible and who can do what and who gets to go where, um, that there's a lot of people who are good at coding, um, but maybe didn't have time to take all the religious studies courses they should have taken in college um, or somewhere else. And um, or even humanities, right? Any humanities, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any 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 anything that would give you a sense of contingency and cultural humility and kind of relativism and the ability to hold complex ideas um, at once that may not jive, but sit with that tension and be okay. Um, So for whatever reason at ILIF we have had and still have people who are really good at artificial intelligence and machine learning and coding. And we have a long history of thinking about ethics and what what does it really mean to be human and what are some of the structures that deny some people full humanity and so it seemed like a great place to try to step into the tech world um so so philip's project this 8020 project has various aspects of trying to get computers to see humanity as humanity sees itself and not sort of the categories that you might find like on a US census, which okay. don't really fit anybody very well. Um, and then and then the sort of uh, outreach part of this is uh, a, a service that we're offering to organizations to help them vet the tech that they use to see if there's uh, any bias. Well, there's always bias. What, what's the bias? What, what um, do, does the tech align with their values? It's, is it going to harm the people they're working with? Um, and what 
can what can we do to help them see that and to help the people producing the tech to um, think about different data sets or different bias remediation things that they could do um, to try to make the tech more pro-human. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I so I was able to sit in on a conversation around this, and I uh, had kind of ancillarily read what was going on with the work through the emails and the you know papers that had been written over the last um, few months since the grant was obtained and the project started. And it's it's remarkable and it's much needed. Um, I think I mean we're going to take a bit of a left turn on this episode um, with Ted. But I would encourage you to listen to the conversation we're going to have with Philip, um, which may be released before this one or maybe released after this one. But do listen because it will give you a more informed view of kind of not just what um, not just how theology and ethics should probably must inform the work that we're doing from a technological standpoint, but also has we, how we as humans should be the ones that are contributing into that, not letting technology inform for us yeah. how how we are being seen and we are being processed yeah. in, in those in those worlds. So uh, I mentioned a left turn. We're going to take a left turn. Um, you're asking a very big question today, Roberto. Um, yeah, and Ted, a conversation that we want to have that's um, that's curious for yeah. me. Um, but but first, let me just say that one of the first classes I took in my PhD program was this class, Theories of Religion. Mm. And, you know, I have been trained in very sort of strict, like, historical theology, theological ethics. And and my, my reading on the periphery in continental philosophy... Um, has was happening simultaneously with my training and when i when i got to my phd program you know there there are these certain classes that you have to take one is pedagogy one is the theories of religion one is the like dissertation proposal and so this was my first class in in the fall of uh, 2009 and you know, I just like really loved it because I had not, I had not thought about um, the ways in which religion has been constructed in the East and the West, the, the global North and the global South, largely because I've been reading these liberationist narratives that have a particular allegiance to a particular religious tradition. And so I really found this theories of religion class to be really insightful. And we all know that theocratic fascism is at play right now, that uh, Christo-fascism is at play right now, and Tennessee, where you and I live, Anna, is deeply compromised yes. by both of those, yes. uh, theocratic fascism and Christo-fascism. And I am really curious uh, because our listeners are also curious. What do we mean when we say religion? And, and maybe you could yeah. also help with even explaining the Latin root for religion. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. So let me just start with another plug. Um, are y'all talking to Amanda Henderson at any time? Not yet. Okay, so that's something for the list. But Amanda is at ILF. She runs something called the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture. Um, and she is an activist with a long history of sort of trying to promote 
progressive legislative changes and cultural changes. Uh, and regard, regarding Christo-fascism, um, one of the projects right now, and this is also part of the, the way that ILIF is trying to get out in the world, um, there are, have been a series of court cases recently and laws where kind of right-wing Christians are trying to claim um, religious freedom as a way of getting exempted from laws that try to make bias, for example, illegal. Okay. Uh, and and so part of the work of the Institute is to think about like, well, what is religion? What's the role it played in American history? Um, how has it shaped the way we look at the world? And uh, Amanda's working with a group of state legislators, a national group of state legislators to try to teach them give them language around what religious freedom historically has and should mean in this country and some messaging to try to pull back some of the uh, social space from what it's starting to mean. So that's just another project, um, which is relevant to what religion is. Okay, so so one thing I'll just say to start is that religion isn't a thing. Um, it's, a, it's a category and the category is made up by humans and um, it changes all the time. And so you always wanna ask, who's defining it and what are they doing that for? Um, so yeah, it, the, the, <laughs> actually, knowing that you would ask me that, Rob, I went back and um, read some, look at some books last night. So- I mean, we had a late night last night. We, we had a late night, We didn't yeah. finish dinner until like 10.30. <laughs> yeah. So you were up late. <laughs> I was up late. Uh, so religion comes from the Latin word religio and the, what that word, meant in Latin is somewhat controversial, but but there's an early definition in the first and second century before the Common Era, uh, a Cicero, who's a famous Roman writer and orator, defines religion as basically the practices of your ancestors. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's the ritual practices of your people. Um, and so a couple of things about that that might sound odd to people are, number one, it doesn't really have to do with belief, right. which mm -hmm. is kind of a Protestant bias that we all have about what religion might be. Um, and it's inherently pluralistic because different people have different peoples and so they have different practices. So for example, uh, Jews in the Roman Empire were an accepted religion because they've been doing the same practices for centuries, and so the Romans were like, that's cool, you do that, um, and we'll do our thing in each of our cities. Um, Christianity starts first century and is a little bit different, um, and actually, as long as Christians were thought of as Jews, they were safe in the Roman Empire, but the second they started to look that like not Jews, they started getting persecuted because because they were not doing what their ancestors had done, and so it did not count as a valid religion in, mm -hmm. in the Roman Empire. So there's another definition that's closer to the one that's sort of common today uh, from second and third century by a guy whose name doesn't matter, but he worked with Constantine who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he's consciously fighting against the argument that Cicero had that it's about practices and it's about traditions and it's about family. And he defines religion as correct belief in the one true God. And if you've got it, you're religious, and if you don't, then you fall into the category of superstition. <laughs> uh, and so there's a clear hierarchy there. It's not pluralistic. It's not necessarily based on practices. Um, and uh, so that kind of tension remains throughout Western history and what people might mean when they say religion. 
So you bring up Constantine, which I've always sort of argued whenever you mix religion and politics, what you get is empire religion. And there is this thread of religion and politics uh, being woven together. You can see it in this country right now, very clearly. Um, what would you say to people? Well, you know, we have a lot of people on our podcast who have left the church, who have given up religion, um, but still have some sense of like a spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know what spirituality means. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably the closest thing to define kind of what what you're left with post-deconstruction, post like the unraveling of everything you, right. you were conscripted into. Right, which I, which I also don't like that word deconstruction, um, partially because I was reading Derrida in college and that's a particular method. A little and, PTSD. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, pe- pe- a lot of people, when I go to conferences, they will say, I'm spiritual, not religious. And I always say, oh, I'm re- religious, not spiritual. Uh, because for me, it is about uh, um, ritualistic or repetitive practices that sort of call me into being, yeah. right? Habit, habitus, right? Yeah. So what would you say to the folks who listen to our podcast, who are those people who are spiritual but not religious, who have left the church, who still find some substance, I mean, like substantive content within Christianity, Yeah. but they aren't jiving with the direction in which Christianity is moving. Yeah. Uh, I would say I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, if, if you can find a community of people who like you are spiritual, not religious, that would be probably helpful. <laughs> so, it, I, 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 yes, and so that it brings me I, one of the questions that I was that was kind of working around in my head as you were giving kind of the Latin um, kind of root of the word, and that that it is a you know a hearkening to practices and ancestral kind of the the the, the practices of our ancestors and mm-hmm. and and of our a family of sort lineage is that looking at where we are today i mean rob and i both often talk about how our our families are families of choice Right. Our families of that that we have that we have constructed and that we have built as community because in in many out aspects, of necessity out of necessity in some yeah. in some ways because our bio families or the ancestors that we we share DNA and blood with are not those that either want us or that we want um, to be in deep community with um, or for a number of reasons and so is there like is there a, an an option there in that, like in the root of the of of the word, kind of before Constantine, um, kind of reappropriates it yeah. for there to be not just um, an ancestral lineage, but also kind of a chosen yeah. 
family lineage when it comes to kind of how we build religious community and how we kind of move into that space yeah. in a way that really works for us? No, that's a great question. I, I think there is. And and so so one thing, I mean, I guess I have a preference for the Cicero definition of like, it's a, it's a history of practices of your people right. over that it's a correct belief. But both, yes. both definitions are making a power play uh-huh. about what's legitimate. Right. And so one of the things, one of the values, I think. And appealing of, to like a histor- a particular historical yes, narrative. Yes. Yeah. So so one of the great things about studying the history of religions is is the the realization that it's all made up. Mm. Right. So so I remember I'm old enough that when I was like in high school, when people would talk about a cult, the, the like the picture in the dictionary next to cult was a Harry Krishna mm-hmm. and everybody would, you know, there were jokes about them in movies and people were afraid of them and parents didn't want their kids to talk to them. And they've been around for a while now. And, you know, there's a very nice Harry Krishna vegetarian restaurant in my neighborhood that everybody loves to go to. And it's not scary anymore. And partly it's just because they've stuck around, right? Right. Um, okay. So they're also going to claim that they have ancient roots uh, in South Asia. But, um, you know, uh, a cult, so cult is a loaded word that, that, that gets frowned upon in the study of religion because mo- mostly what people mean is it's kind of small, it's kind of new, and it feels weird to us. But, you know, that's what every religion is right. at the start. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, that, so, so what's, that's maybe disorienting, but it's also kind of empowering because, yes, if you decide to get together with a group of people and start a new thing, you're actually— You're starting a cult. Yeah, but—, but Islam is a cult and Christianity is a cult, right? right. They're, they're, you're no less legitimate than what we call, you know, the world religion, or the ones that feel respectable to people on the street. Right. So when I was in high school, um, I graduated in 94. Um, the the cult, and I grew up in Texas, uh, the cult that made national news and maybe world news was David Koresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Okay, so so when I was in high school, <laughs> the cult that made national news uh, was Jonestown, right. uh, and that had a very violent ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the reasons why it's not just kind of academic finickiness to 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 try to speak good, clear language is that um, one of the reasons why the whole disaster in Waco went down it the way it did is because the FBI immediately used the label cult and cult meant something like Jonestown and cult meant if we don't get in there with our guns, they're going to start killing children. Right. And that's what they did. And that caught that, you know, I don't know how it would unfold if they hadn't done that, but that's actually the proximate thing that caused the violence in that case. So, so once you call somebody a cult, uh, which is kind of like weaponizing. It's like, weaponizing. It's dehumanizing, and it's like, oh, you know, we better, we better. Because cult, because on some level, the government naming something as a cult is saying that's not normal, or that's right. not legitimate, or yeah. that's not intelligible. Right. Right. Culturally acceptable. Right. Yeah. So I want to go back to one more thing, Rob, that you said earlier about uh, about um, there's there are other layers in the genealogy of of religion. So. So there's the two definitions we talked about from like the ancient world. And then there are shifts also sort of 18th, 19th century that, that get folded into our definition of religion. Um, so for example, uh, um, the idea that religion is a matter of individual conscience mm-hmm. is it comes sort of out of 
the Enlightenment period of the 18th and 19th century. So, so uh, James Madison, very problematic person, but but also authored the um, separation of church and state um, statute in Virginia that was the model of the First Amendment, which you know as amendments go, I think is pretty good. Uh, defines religion as the individual's personal relationship in their conscience with their God. Um, so, so that's individualistic and it's non-coercive, right? So, so both of the earlier definitions from the Roman world are pretty coercive. Like you better believe this or you better do what your ancestors did. And, and James Madison and other people in the Enlightenment are arguing, well, actually, um, if it's coerced, it's not real, it's not authentic. It's, it's you know, it, it, you can't make somebody do it because that means they don't really believe it, right? Uh, ancient religion, is like oh we're in the business of coercion like mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. we need to make you into what you're supposed to mm -hmm, be <laughs> mm -hmm. so this this james madison uh definition yeah uh feels uh feels as if um it feels very like rooted in 19th century liberalism yep. which which has been really i've seen accelerated on the evangelical side of yep. things and you use this term coercion and when i think about my own history uh going to catholic school there was a lot of coercion there to mm -hmm. like make my first communion but yep. i had theological questions about the virgin birth so they they didn't actually actually were like you you are a problem we are not going to let you make your first <laughs> communion so i, I want to say that i was a budding theologian in yeah. the first grade yeah. um and then when I look at like purity culture or the queerphobia, homophobia, and transphobia within evangelical circles, um, you know, conversion therapy is yeah. highly motivated by this coercion. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and in fact, we're seeing a lot of that now that people's appeal to some notion of Christianity through evangelical sentiments is is really rooted in some type of coercion yeah yeah so so in, in a way it's um it, it's uh it's this idea that religion is sort of your in your inner conscience and it, and you're free um can double down in a bad way when when the response of the world is um you better be religious in the following way but you better do it sincerely and authentically that's super coercive. Like right. that's people getting into your mind. Right, right. <laughs> so, you have to buy into it. Yeah. And you also have to buy into it well. You have to succeed at doing the thing that we have told you you are required to do. Right. Because in the beginning, minus the coercion, the Madison definition felt very Quaker. Like, yeah. oh, this sort of be illumined, you know, this sort of inner light. Mm -hmm. um, but then when you add in coercion, you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So the, the, uh, I had a similar uh, budding theologian story as you in high school. My, my folks um, were both from kind of smallish towns in the Midwest, Presbyterian since whatever, John Calvin. Um, and uh, and I like so the church growing up was a huge part of my life. I, all my best friends were there, it was the center of my social life. Uh, my family always went. Uh, and uh, for me, it was eighth grade. 
it was time to get confirmed. And I went to the confirmation class because all my friends were going. I always sort of thought, I, I don't know, I've, I, I never quite could buy into the doctrines, but I always thought neither can anybody else. I, I thought everybody went there was sort of winking at each other. And then I realized when they were gonna make us get up in front of everybody and say, this is what I believe, like, oh, some people actually really do believe this. Mm. Um, so uh, I had a, I had a argument slash conversation with my parents about whether or not I should go to church. Um, and my parents, of course, thought I should, and I didn't want to do it. And, and I thought my best argument was, look, core to your belief system is the resurrection. I think that's super implausible. In fact, I think it's probably um, disrespectful for me to go to church with with my belief about how ridiculous that belief is, right? <laughs> um, and then this and this. I, sometimes I talk about this as the as the the time when my interest in studying religion began. I took I looked at my dad, who was very kind of calm, rational, good Midwestern Protestant guy. He was a chemist, um, and I said, I mean, Dad, do you believe in the resurrection? And he said yes, but he had to think for like two minutes. Yeah. And I don't think he ever actually had asked himself that question. And I realized, okay. For my dad and for my mom, like religion was their people. It's their family, it's their community, it's who they knew. Um, and along with that comes certain things that people believe, but but I had always thought of like religion as a set of sort of statements about the world. And if you believe them, you're in, and if you don't, you're out. And then I realized, oh, this actually, it's about a community. It's about a group of people. Um, and that community does things for people, certain things for them. It's a sense of belonging. And um, if, if, if part of belonging is saying, I believe the following things, a lot of people are like, that's cool with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, that's, so now we're shifting from James Madison to Emile Durkheim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that it's a, it's a social, uh, that religion is a social group, mm -hmm. which I think is probably a better definition if you have to pick a one. And it's kind of a haunting specter, right? Yeah. On, on some level. Because now you, it's not about, I don't think it's about belonging anymore. It's about like right belief, a, a sense of orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I think that is correct. But I, so I want to go back to one other thing you said earlier, Rob, which is um, about the Christo fascism. There is still, I think, in in the way that many of us walk around thinking, oh, I think I know what a religion is, this idea that it ought to be non-coercive, right? right? Um, and both in our legal system and in our academic study of religion, that has led us to rank religions. So there's a really um, great book by a woman named Leora Batnitsky, who's a scholar of modern Judaism, and, and she just says flat up in the first paragraph of the book, I define, um, modernity as the moment when Jews got um, civil rights and were able to vote and and she says that's when Judaism became a religion and before that it was an ethnicity it was a nation it was a culture and it was a religion the moment those things get teased apart is the moment that people say oh it's a religion mm -hmm. okay so so what happens is there are things that we would identify as religions that don't separate those things out as neatly. Native American traditions, some forms of Islam, some forms of Catholicism, um, and they get discriminated against because it mm -hmm. doesn't feel like good religion to people. Mm -hmm. 
right? So it doesn't feel like good religion to the the culture that has appropriated itself as the kingmaker yes. of what religion is. Correct. I mean, you know, we 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 very clearly live in a a, a state where you know white Protestantism, Eurocentric Christian nationalism is the default standard yeah. by which we gauge all other faith traditions and or religions plus or minus whatever right. scale we feel like they fall on whether they are um more valued which i don't think anyone would say any are right. um, or by which they are less valued and we gauge it on you know how closely they be we believe they relate to that standard yeah yeah no that's exactly right. so so for example in supreme court case history uh, during the, the era of prohibition when it was illegal to drink, Catholics got a pass and could serve wine at communion because Catholics feel kind of okay to the right. Protestant structure, right? But uh, American Indians who wanted to ingest peyote, that was a drug violation and they were going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Because, because there's something about Native American traditions which look, frankly, a little bit more like Cicero than like the Christian definition that just makes it feel like, oh, it's not really a religion. These people are just looking to do drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have all these ideas and directions we, sh- we could go. Um, and, I, and maybe we should have you back on uh, around Easter time or for the Easter episode, because I think we could have a really interesting conversation about resurrection. Um, because, I, you know, I think when I went to seminary, I've been trained by United Methodists. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to seminary in, in Chicago, um, I thought, well, the resurrection like defies science. Yeah. And yet, when I when I read, for example, Latin American liberation theology, in particular, um, Archbishop Oscar Romero, mm-hmm. and where he says. I will rise up in my people. I'm like, oh, that's resurrection, ancestral yeah. memory, right? So I think we can have a really interesting conversation about that. Yeah. Because um, I'm actually trying to work on um, something around if you know if if Black Lives Matter and trans lives matters, then then the resurrection then the resurrection has to be true. But I mean that in a sort of ancestral memory bubbling up. You know, yeah. but so that's that's an aside. Yeah. Um, two things that I that I want to address is um, one is when b- before I finished my PhD, uh, maybe you also went to this lecture at CU Boulder when Jay Z Smith uh, lectured. I missed that sadly. Okay. So Jay Z Smith, Jonathan Z Smith, uh, History of Religions. Uh, powerhouse really from the university of chicago um gave a lecture and and basically said that um we've got to begin rethinking the body Mm -hmm. in in religious studies yeah now you know that my entire dissertation was on this materiality of the body as that which is becoming so if 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 J.C. Smith is right, mm-hmm. let's let's just say he's right that that we've got to rethink the body. Yeah. Um. When I am in Latin America, 
there is a sense on a cellular level that my body knows and understands the terrain. That's how I feel in New Jersey. Really? It is. So can we talk about a kind of somatic awareness relative to place and land? And, and, And how does that complicate or destabilize a sort of normative understanding of religion. Yeah, well, that's that's great. There's at least 10 great things in there. Um, so one of the biases that that is the result of kind of the Protestant power structure that gets to define, not even define is too intellectual a word, just the, the, the gut sense we all have of what we know as a religion is shaped by sort of the Protestant history of the United States, right? Um, and that's where it's it's places like the U.S. where the, the study of comparative religions got its start. So that bias runs through what a lot of people think about other religions too. So one of the biases is that it's not about the body. It, you know, it's, it's um, faith, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, which actually I think there's ways of thinking about faith that are embodied, but that's not the typical way that people think about it, right? right. Uh, I think that um, there's a lot of uh, great work on somatics and on cognitive science and uh, it, that shows that um, actually the way that most people operate is not that they have an idea and then they put it into action, but that the world interacts with your body and that shapes what your ideas are gonna be in the first place. Um, so yes, I think that, the, the, that, the, that religion as an embodied set of practices um, is a super helpful way to think about it. And, and in the sort of Reformation debates between Protestants and Catholics, the Protestants were always saying like, hey, you guys are, you have all these stupid rituals and you have these smells and these incenses and it's all superstition. Um, we just have faith, right? But but if you look at Protestantism, it's also an aesthetic and a, and a set of bodily practices. You know, I spent so much time in church, like sitting quietly mm-hmm. right. with an uncomfortable shirt on. Like that's a, that's a bodily practice. Right. Kneeling, standing. Yeah. Like the the, the transition between posture. Yeah. Um, the um, like the approach and the descent from a space. Yeah. approach to altar descent from altar yeah i mean there there are embodied awarenesses that we have yeah um i mean i i i, I mean there is something I, I can't eat um hawaiian sweetbread without in in real life without a curiosity about where the grape juice is <laughs> i mean yeah. i mean yeah. and it's a simplistic but it, but it's a it's a feeling that yeah. kind of comes from my guts in the same way that the terrain of Latin America feels like a you know a, is holding you mm-hmm. is is literally kind of a, a base for you. We have spent so long as kind of and I, we white folks, um, Protestant white folks, trying to disembody ourselves yeah. from our faith. Because the headspace of faith, I think, at least for me, felt overwhelming and unattainable enough. Yeah. Like there was already this sense that like my head, like I could never be that good. I could never be that pious. I could never be that right. Um, 
And if my head can't get there, well, shit, my, my body's definitely never going to get there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm raised in the 80s and purity culture is a, a, a standard by which we're gauged. And so, you know, anytime the body yeah. revolts, um, you know, that I mean, sin is the first thing that comes to mind right. as, you know, someone that's like you raised in the church and there every week. And, yeah. you know, and so I... I love that there's a, I love that you have a, a plumb line there. I also recognize fully that a lot of the folks that are listening in right now are really doing their best to figure out how they begin to reassociate yeah. their body with whatever it is that they are naming as their spiritual or religious or faith practices in this moment. Yeah. Um, because we have spent so long attempting to disentangle them and to and to move them as far away from each other as we can. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And 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 the you know that's why people put a lot of energy into making up new rituals. Um, and sometimes that feels disingenuous because rituals are supposed to be unchanging, but but they all got made up at some point, right? I, I, I feel that too, Anna, a lot. And I, I don't spend hardly any time in churches anymore. But when I go into certain Protestant churches, I do kind of feel at home there. Mm-hmm. Same. And um, I, that comes with a little bit of grief because yeah. I know that I am not. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I'll ever have that experience of really being at home there again, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's a little bit of, uh, and, and I'm, envious of traditions that are more obviously and intentionally embodied uh, because I feel like if I had grown up in a tradition like that, I wouldn't have to worry about my headspace so much. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> when I was in Palestine, I remember acutely sitting out at the Austrian um, hospitality building mm-hmm. where there's a cafe and so I was drinking coffee and eating this Austrian pastry that had <laughs> apples in it. It was yeah. delicious. And about three days prior, uh, and you know, it's a military occupation and there's military everywhere yeah. and guns, gun military people with guns. And about three days prior to me sitting down with my friend Michael under a tree drinking our coffee, a Palestinian Muslim was attacked right at the Aust- Austrian um, hospitality cafe. And on that day, I was sort of remembering, you know, because I saw it on social media, and now I was at this place where um, a stateless person mm-hmm. was persecuted. And it was noon, and the call to prayer began to happen. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment of holding um, both the history of violence against difference for a lot of people yeah, and the beauty of the sounds that I was hearing. And, and there was, um, there was something in my body that responded to that. Yeah. And I find Islam really beautiful. I actually thought about converting when I was in seminary because I found it, there was something that called to me in the sort of the rituals are very beautiful to me. I don't think I would make a very good Muslim for lots of reasons. (laughs) Um, But I, I distinctly remember the sort of bodied response that I had in Jerusalem in the old city upon hearing the call to prayer. Yeah. 
that's fine. I used to think I wanted to be Jewish uh, because all the all my Jewish friends were like smart and progressive and funny. Until I went to Israel, and I was like, "Oh, it's it's just like everywhere else." But that's because you lived in a kibbutz. I lived in a kibbutz, yeah. But but the I, I don't know what's okay to say. There's a lot of Jewish rednecks in Israel. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I, I had never met one in New Jersey, so I was like, oh, this is not so different from mm -hmm. some of the Christians <laughs> I run across in the, our country, too. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, we've covered a lot of territory um, in this conversation. I think I, I would be curious, Ted, to, to just kind of um, have some kind of last thoughts from you on, um, we started with the question, what do we mean when we say religion? Mm -hmm. um, what does that identify in us or for us? Um, it's 2022. Um, yeah. The landscape that we are living in, in some ways looks very similar to what we are used to, in some ways is feeling very different yeah. from things that any of us have experienced to date. Yeah. Um, where do you see, um, however it is that you define religion, kind of manifesting itself and being your accompaniment through these times and in these days. Ooh, that took a turn I wasn't expecting at the end. <laughs> or does it? I mean, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Um, manifest yeah. to you. Well, I, so I'll, I, I will try to answer that, but, I, but, but in working up to that, I would say, like we were talking earlier about, about religion as a group and a, as a set of embodied practices and a sense of belonging, and, and that sounds great to me. And, um, and one of the ways which I most am aware of the manifestations of religion in, in the United States today in 2022 is, uh, this really horrible um, ratcheting up of white Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. and and it's 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 the negative side of like the Dur Durkheimian argument that religion is about belonging to a group of people, because there's nothing about what folks say they believe that would justify what they're doing. It really is about I I define my people as the people with who look this way and have this history and and we're doubling down on this is the in-group, right? Uh, that's religion, sadly. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know about, I don't know how it, uh, I have, so I, I grew up, I grew up partly as a reaction against my parents' religion, just kind of overly rational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't, feel like religion accompanies me, but I'm aware as I get older that um, I'm more open to stuff than I, that I used to be. I like, mean, listen, you told me you started meditating. I started so, meditating. So I'm like, okay, you're becoming yeah. a contemplative activist. I like it. Yeah, I started <laughs> meditating. I did my, I, there was this pivotal moment for me. I was talking to my therapist and she was, I was having a strong emotional reaction and she said, where do you feel that? I'm like, that's a funny question. And then, I, but now I'm all about like somatics and it's okay. super helpful. So I don't have a community, but I, you know, those are what people might identify as vaguely religious ideas that are helpful to me these days. Do you see that there, do you see that um, religion has, I don't know how to phrase this. I wanted to say kind of has a, a, a future that 
allows us to sink more into kind of the the future that we imagine or do you see it more as a barrier to that future we imagine yeah that's a great question i i think that um so when i was younger i used to think like religion's causing a lot of problems we should all just be secular now I realize like secular is not really secular and, and, and a lot of the great things that have happened progressively have been religiously driven. So um, I don't think, I think creating different, different spaces where people feel like they belong and can um, work towards justice, like creating that, those spaces would be, I'm not overly optimistic, I have to say, but that would be a really good strategy. Yeah. So, um, We've spent a lot of time together sort of reviewing my dissertation and we would meet every week at this coffee shop, which for me felt like a ritual, Yeah. right? We would have coffee, we would have discussion, and, and that feels to me like religion, a sort yeah. of practice uh, in community, uh, fostering togetherness, right? Yeah. So I much more appeal to, and always have, to Cicero's definition. Yeah of a sort of ancestor, stewarding ancestral wisdom. It's how I talk about following the ways of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. This is an ancestor teaching. Mm -hmm. um, should we reclaim religion right now? Is it, worth, is it worth helping people to have a historical memory of the definitions of religion? Or should we just Say fuck it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to argue for a multi-pronged strategy. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like an easy way out to me, Ted. Yeah. No, so so I will say there's ways in which, and I I know the academy can be a horrible place, but but there's ways in which that has functioned for me like a religion because it is, um, it, it is a, it's a community with a long-standing set of practices. And it's got a, a, a liturgical calendar, a yearly right. liturgical. So I, that, I feel, in some ways, like that is. I feel kind of at home there. Sometimes I realize it was also set up for people like me, but I do feel at home there. Um, I think that uh, it's very difficult to get people who are practicing a kind of religion that I find destructive. Like it's not. There's no rational historical argument that's going to flip people. I mean, if religion is about belonging. And this is so hard to do. It's about if 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 you have the bandwidth, if you have the emotional resources, it's about making connections mm -hmm. and and letting them know you and know that, oh, I was told that everything you believe is evil, but actually you're you're kind of cool. And being open to connections that are not those that fit within the construct of, I mean, I would have to think that if if religion really is that, then, and it's about making connections that it has to then also be about making connections and broadening those connections with those that are othered yeah. with those that are not like you which flies in the face of the destructive yeah. religion that that you've named yeah which i feel like you do in many respects you like you read a bunch you engage with people who are different than you i mean i remember the 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 first email I got from you, is, I, I don't know anything about Gloria Zadua, but I like your work. And the, you're sort of welcome to difference. Yeah. That, you know, what happens when we let difference shape us, is that a future mm -hmm. that we want? And and I'll say, every week I get DMs from people who say, where are you a pastor? What Like, what <laughs> church do you, and I'm yeah. like, no. 
Yeah. That's I'm a theologian. Yeah. I am not a pastor. You know, and it's very interesting that people want yeah. people want belonging. People want some kind of connection, mm-hmm. some kind of ritualistic connection. And it's really got me thinking like can this app provide conditions or create conditions for a kind of belonging mm-hmm. that isn't toxic, right. that doesn't accelerate death dealing logics? Um, yeah. Or as you know, Willie James Jennings talks about um, the death in any in every part of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think we do need belonging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it need to be framed by religion, or or is there any? Is there even a way to get outside of religion? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a haunting specter. It is. I will say that the, what you, thank you for what you said about my openness. Um, that's what I aspire to. I don't always achieve it, but, but I also think that the, those, that, that openness, um, can be cultivated by bodily practices. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a personality trait. And so, if you could find if if you can find people and it sort of intentionally do the work to be open um, and make connections around people that with people who are othered and who feel different, both those who have power and those who don't, um, the a community of people committing to the practices to to make themselves more open and less judgy. Uh, I mean, by Durkheim's definition, would be a religion, mm-hmm. and you know that's that's one I would show up for. Mm-hmm. Ted, thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for um, allowing us to kind of dive deep into this word that is so problematic and haunting for some and also so full of curiosity for others. Um, We're grateful for you. We're grateful for your support of activist theology. Um, And we're just, we're we're glad that you were able to come and chat with us today. Well, thank you. You all are amazing and it's an honor to be here. Thanks. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.